This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith's legal team is telling CBC News to retract a recent news story, saying the outlet is seeking to revive a, quote, manufactured controversy. A violent attack on a transit bus in Surrey, B.C. over the weekend is deemed a terrorist attack by the RCMP. A prominent African-American scholar says she believes it is, quote, totally appropriate for white professors to use the N-word in academic contexts. The Prime Minister's official residence at 24 Sussex was closed following the discovery of walls filled with dead rodents. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, April 4th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Lindsay Shepard. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith's legal team is telling CBC News to retract a recent news story about contact her office has had with justice officials over Coote's border blockade charges, saying the outlet is seeking to revive a, quote, manufactured controversy. The letter, dated Sunday, gives notice of the Premier's, quote, intention to bring an action against the CBC. Last week, CBC reported on a newly released call between Smith and controversial street pastor Archer Pulowski. On the call, Smith says she's been in weekly contact with justice officials regarding the pastor's criminal charges from his involvement with the Coots border blockade. CBC's report argues that the call reveals that Smith's conversations with, quote, top Alberta justice officials about pandemic-related prosecutions were more frequent and specific than she has admitted publicly. Smith responded to the report on Wednesday, saying she already told the public that her staff worked with justice officials to determine how to help those charged with, quote, non-violent, non-firearms, COVID-related charges. Smith's lawyer says the story comes months after the first, with CBC apparently seeing a need to revive a, quote, manufactured controversy. His letter says, quote, The CBC now again blatantly ignores the Premier's prior statements and recasts the harmful and defamatory narrative of unlawful interference and deceit by the Premier and her office. Lindsay, we spent a lot of time discussing the story last week on the podcast as there were many developments to it. And it's been in the news in Alberta headlines for a couple months now. Back in January, the first story of this nature was published by CBC News. Now it appears that the Premier is intending to bring notice of action to CBC News. We have this letter. I have talked to CBC. Their head of public affairs, Chuck Thompson, says the outlet stands by its journalism on this story. And if necessary, they're prepared to defend it in court. Now, the big question is that Danielle Smith needs to attract moderate voters to vote for the UCP in the upcoming provincial election in May. There's a multitude of swing ridings in Calgary and outside Edmonton that the UCP must win to form government. And a lot of people are very worried. How do you think this story and the Premier's intention to bring action against the CBC is going to play over with moderates in the provincial vote? Well, it does seem like a manufactured controversy. And just the fact how 
Smith said she can't interfere with the justice system. She was heard saying that on the recording. So I wonder if a lot of moderates are saying, well, what is the issue here? Yeah, it's certainly a very interesting question. I suspect that over the next couple of days, we'll be able to see in the polling how this is playing out with moderates. And again, I suspect there's a fair chance that a lot of people are probably not paying super close attention to the story. It's extremely nuanced. There's so many layers to it. There's actually three CBC stories that the premier and her office took issues with over the past couple months, and it appears that they're bringing their lawsuit just in regards to this third and most recent story that we spent a lot of time discussing last week. Now, another question that people have is, you know, is it risky to do this before the election? Is this going to dominate election discussion? Or is it actually strategy on the premier and her office part so that they can avoid answering questions about this controversy because the matter could end up before the courts? The premier had a lengthy press conference yesterday. She was asked repeatedly about this legal notice and her answer most of the time was, I can't discuss it any further because this matter is likely to be subject to legal proceedings. So in a way, she doesn't really have to talk about the issue too much, but also that could drag it out more. The RCMP is investigating a terrorist attack in Surrey, British Columbia, which took place this past weekend on a transit bus. Abdul Aziz Kawam was first charged with attempted murder for allegedly slashing a passenger in the throat on Saturday morning, and a second victim was also allegedly assaulted with a knife at a bus stop. After RCMP National Security Police took over the investigation, prosecutors added four counts of terrorism on Monday. The charges allege the attacks were carried out for the so-called Islamic State, or ISIS. While the violent attack was first described as random, shortly after the incident, Kawam allegedly made statements about having conducted the attack for ISIS. Kawam is facing four counts of attempted murder, possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose, and two assaults with a weapon causing bodily harm. The addition of the terrorism charges could result in a life sentence. Uh, well, Rachel, were you expecting something like this to be in our news cycle? No, I absolutely was not. And frankly, I'm horrified to read the story. It seems like every week on this podcast, there's an increasing amount of horrific, violent crime stories to cover. And as I was reading through this one the other day, I was extremely surprised to hear that the attack was done on behalf of ISIS. I was also fairly surprised to see that the addition of terrorism charges could result in a life sentence. This man slashed someone's throat. I think he should have been facing a life sentence to begin with. So, I mean, I've said it again, and I'll say it until we start to see change. We need to have more severe responses and penalties for people accused and convicted of committing violent crimes if we're going to expect to see a changes in our urban cities. Right. And just the fact that so many of these things take place on transit or, you know, near bus stops. You know, I'm kind of an advocate of public transit, I would say. And it's unfortunate because people are just going to become too scared and they're like people are going to become shut-ins in their own houses. It's going to be even scarier than it is now to go out in public in some of these places. Uh, I have seen people say, though, that at least, yes, with the terrorism charges, the sentence could be longer because it just seems like if you attack someone randomly in British Columbia, you're out, out on the street, like you're back and released the next day. That seems to be how, it, how it's been going. Yeah, and it's almost sad that we're at a point now where, oh, well, at least he's also facing terrorism charges. So now he's facing a life sentence. Like, 
This was an extremely serious and violent crime to begin with. The penalty should have been just as severe. And to your point about being a public transit advocate, when I lived in Ottawa, I loved taking the public transit. I found the buses very convenient. In the winter, arguably, you spent a fair amount of time waiting at times, which was a bit inconvenient. But since I've been living in Alberta, I haven't actually felt comfortable to take the public transit. In Edmonton, it's quite a disaster. There's a lot of open-air drug use and attacks that happen on the transit, so that absolutely needs to get cleaned up. And in Calgary, there's also a lot of open-air drug use, but you have a lot of the homeless and addiction population hanging out in transit centers. You know, they can kind of find a little bit of warmth there. In recent weeks, there's been some stabbings on these platforms. So here in Alberta, at least, I'm already at a point where I would just prefer to avoid public transit. It's not really worth the risk, in my opinion. And I think that's something that we need to take a serious look at and figure how can we get back to a point where everybody, including women, including women with young children, feel safe to use public transit and all the services that are available to them. Amid multiple controversies at Canadian post-secondary institutions involving white professors and lecturers being cancelled for using the N-word in class as part of their curricula, prominent African-American scholar Dr. Carol Swain tells True North that she believes it is totally appropriate for white professors to do so. Swain said, quote, I think it's totally appropriate. Where you have free speech, I would hope that people would be able to use the N-word. Swain said she hopes that, quote, a teacher who's been teaching a subject for many, many decades would not lose their job just because they don't conform to what the latest politically correct standards are. The debate over use of the N-word in academic settings rose to prominence in Canada in the fall of 2020, after University of Ottawa professor Rushka Lieutenant Duvall was suspended for using the word in her art and gender class, while explaining how certain marginalized groups have reclaimed slurs. Meanwhile, a senior city of Markham Human Resources employee was placed on leave last month after she said and displayed the N-word in a presentation to George Brown College students. Well, Lindsay, I suspect this story is going to make the rounds. I'm sure a lot of people find this highly controversial. I actually don't really remember a time in my adult life where the N-word was appropriate to say, um, but I expect that for some professors, if they've been in the profession for such a long time, they started out saying it without an issue and maybe they aren't aware how things have changed or maybe they just don't want to go along with what the new politically correct standards are. What's your take on this story? Well, the thing is, with the case of the University of Ottawa professor, Rushka Lieutenant Duval, and with the case of the City of Markham employee, they were using the N-word in a meta context. They were not directing the word at someone. They were not using it as a slur. They were talking about the word itself and like the politics behind it. Um, at the University of Ottawa, yeah, she was talking about how marginalized groups have reclaimed slurs. Um, the city of Markham human resources employee was talking about how it's a bad word and how it like it shouldn't be used as a slur. And then let's not forget Wendy Mesley, who was a, you know, longtime CBC journalist, had her own show. And then it turns out behind the scenes, she used the word when, I can't remember the, oh, I think it was in the context of bringing up a book title that was called White N-Words of America. But of course, the whole word was written there. And it was, it's a book written about Quebec, actually, like dynamics in Quebec. Uh, so Wendy Mesley, of course, was famously fired over this. And in all of the cases, these women were not using it as a slur. So I am totally with uh, Dr. Carol Swain here. 
And I'm glad that she has said what she said. In newly obtained documents by the National Post, the National Capital Commission detailed numerous safety concerns about the Prime Minister's official residence at 24 Sussex, including a severe rodent infestation that threatened the air quality of the residence. The note from late June reads, quote, There is an important rodent infestation, which can't be fully addressed until the building envelope issues are resolved. In the meantime, we use bait to control the situation, but that leaves us with excrement and carcasses between the walls and in the attic and basement spaces. 24 Sussex was completed in 1896 and is a 35-room, four-floor mansion. It has served as the Prime Minister's official residence since 1951. Stephen Harper was the last Prime Minister to reside in the home, as Justin Trudeau has chosen to live at Rideau Cottage instead. While nobody currently resides in 24 Sussex, the building is still costing taxpayers thousands of dollars in utility bills. Despite the deteriorating conditions of the building, the National Capital Commission has deferred and delayed much-needed repairs. A 2021 report by the commission revealed that it would cost taxpayers $36.6 million to restore the home. What do you think, Rachel? Are you on team uh, restore this property, tear it down? What do you think? Well, I definitely think we should give up on using it as the Prime Minister's official residence. Of course, Justin Trudeau hasn't been living there. I believe he's actually come under a lot of flack for that. But when we read about the circumstances of this house, I don't find it surprising. It's actually entirely appropriate that he wouldn't want to live there with his family. What a disgusting state of the house. I certainly would not want to live there. I don't have any issue with the National Capital Commission paying for the repairs. You know, maybe we should just keep it as a historical building. I do think it would be a little bit sad to tear it down. And other countries spend a lot of money investing in historical buildings and keeping them around so that tourists can come visit when they want to see them. But I think this residence is beyond the point of repair in terms of I just don't see it being suitable for people to live in. But, you know, if they decided to tear it down, I wouldn't have a huge issue with that either, but I suspect most Canadians would. Yeah, I love heritage homes. I think it should be preserved. Um, I just am worried if they choose to build a new prime minister's official residence somewhere, what are they going to do? Is it going to be some sort of like modern luxury mansion? You know, like these new kind of square block houses with like lots of glass. Like, is there is there going to be any sense of uh, architecture, architecture or or like tradition? Uh, so that's what I would be worried about. Yeah, that's a very good point. I don't personally love the look of modern homes, but it would probably seem a bit out of place. Although I suspect within time, the modern look won't appear the in style anymore. So people would just look at it as another old building that was built in a different era. But, you know, the National Capital Commission has been very protective over the property and the buildings that they've had control over in Ottawa. If we think about the parliamentary precinct, we have the Chateau Laurier there. We have the parliament buildings. These are all actually really beautiful heritage buildings. They've done an excellent job at maintaining them. So while the National Capital Commission does seem to spend quite a bit of money, um, I actually have full confidence that they would be able to put something together that would be an appropriate design. Well, that's all for today. And don't forget to check in at tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media. You can do that over at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.